evidence and answers. Most people in the culture believe the facts of science contradict the teachings of the Bible. However, the facts of science are actually best explained through the lenses of the biblical worldview. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Recently, Pat held his first ever Zoom apologetics conference entitled Truth, Finding Clarity in Confusing Times. Guest speakers included Kirby Anderson, Fazal Rana, Randy Manley, and our own Pat Zucran. Here with the conclusion to Truth in Science, is Fazal Rana. This idea of a, of a transcendent personal agent that brought the universe into existence is in line with what we see uh, in Scripture itself, where God is being described in his relationship, again, to the universe and his relationship to planet Earth. Okay, what I'd like to do now is continue talking about the design argument, but I'm going to shift gears and move away from the universe and planetary science, and I'm going to now move into the realm of life, the life sciences, and particularly, I'm going to take a look at the design that we see in the inner workings of the cell. Uh, I'm a biochemist uh, by training, and so this is the area of science that I specialize in, is the molecular systems that make up the cell, and how those systems are structured, how those systems operate, and how those structures and operational processes contribute to uh, life itself. And the design that we see inside the cell is astounding. And in fact, the design is so astounding that it is, is responsible for me to converting to the Christian faith. When I started graduate school, I was an agnostic. I didn't know if God existed or not, and I honestly didn't care. My sole purpose in graduate school was to earn a PhD and then to pursue a career in research and uh, as a scientist. Yet as a graduate student, I was confronted with the elegance and the sophistication and the ingenuity of the cell's chemical systems. And when I began to examine evolutionary explanations for the origin of life, and hence the origin of biochemical systems, I found those explanations to be inadequate. There was no way, from my perspective, that chemistry and physics could generate the types of biochemical systems that we see inside the cell. And it was at that point I recognized that there had to be a mind. And that then opened me up to uh, questions that led me to the, the foot of the cross, namely, who is that creator and how do I relate to that creator? And to me, the gospel made the most sense of those questions, made the most sense of, of the human condition, made the most sense of my need and how my ultimate need for forgiveness and for salvation can be found in the person of Christ. But all this to say is that the design that we see inside the cell is, is the most, I think, the most profound evidence for design that we see in the totality of the universe itself. As remarkable as the fine-tuning of the constants of physics are, it's, to me, the design that we see in the cell is even that much more remarkable. And what I want to do to talk about uh, the design in the cell is to take a look at a philosophical argument that was made for God's existence around the turn of the late 1700s, early 1800s. And this is uh, the watchmaker argument. Maybe you're familiar with this argument. This is an argument developed by the British 
uh, natural theologian William Paley uh, and was published in his book, Natural Theology. And the, the subtitle of the book is Evidence of the Existence and Attributes of the Deity Collected from the Appearances of Nature. And in this book, Paley presents this argument for God's existence called the watchmaker argument. And what Paley did was he compared a watch, which he argued is, is the product of a human designer. Watches in his day were the pinnacle of engineering achievement. And Paley argued that a watch has certain attributes that indicate the work of the mind. And he compared a watch to a rock, which is something produced by natural processes. And the idea there is that those things produced by by natural processes have certain features, and those things produced by minds have distinct features that distinguish them from the work of natural process mechanisms. And, and because of that, uh, we can recognize the work of a designer if those designs that we're looking at have the same attributes as a watch. And so when Paley surveyed uh, biological systems and what was known about them at that time, he argued that biological systems have this appearance of design. They look as if they are similar to that of a watch, more so than that of a rock, and therefore argued that if a watch requires a watchmaker, then life itself must require a creator. And this is known as the watchmaker argument. Uh, and, that, and this is how Paley uh, describes uh, the, the design that you see in a watch. He writes the, these words. If the different parts had been differently shaped from what they are, or placed after any other manner or in any other order than that in which they are placed, either no motion at all would have been carried out in the machine, or none which would have answered the use that, it is, that is now served by it. This mechanism being observed, the inference we think is inevitable, that the watch must have had a maker. There must have existed at some time and in some place or other an artificer or artificers who formed it for the purpose for which we find it actually to answer, who comprehended its construction and designed its use. And so as a biochemist, I think that what we've learned in recent years about the nature of biochemical systems allows us to present what I would call a revitalized a watchmaker argument, an argument that gains, for a watchmaker argument that gains new power and new potency, uh, because what we have learned is that the defining features of biochemical systems are identical to the features that we would recognize as uh, the product of, of human designs. In other words, as human designers, when we design, when we invent, when we create systems or objects or devices, those things that we make have certain telltale properties that indicate to us the work of a mind. And likewise, when we look at biochemical systems, we see that the features that define biochemical systems, their hallmark characteristics are identical to those characteristics, again, that reflect the work of a human designer. And so therefore, if certain features reflect the work of the mind, and we see those same features in the cell, but yet those features are even more uh, impressive than anything that we could produce as human designers, is this not evidence that life itself, again, came from the work of a mind as well. Uh, and in, in addition to certain hallmark features that, again, reflect or characteristic of, uh, of the work of a designer, we also recognize that in there, there are some biochemical systems in their totality 
that bear this eerie resemblance to man-made designs. And what I want to talk about this evening are molecular machines, that there are literally protein complexes inside the cell that are machines in their very nature, in terms of their architecture and in terms of their operation. And so one of the machines that we want to talk about is something called F1F0 ATPase, or another name is ATP synthase, and that's a, a mouthful, and that's a lot of technical jargon there. But this is essentially an electrically powered rotary motor that is an energy transduction machine uh, that the cell uses to harvest energy to power its operation. And uh, this, is, uh, this picture that you're looking at is essentially a, a depiction of this machine uh, the left is what's called a ribbon diagram. Biochemists refer to that as a ribbon diagram. And on the right is what's called a space-filling model. But this is essentially what this protein complex looks like. It's a massive protein complex. And to give you some sense for what we're looking at, uh, before we kind of talk about its mach the machine-like nature of this protein complex, let's give you some context. So here is a, a diagram showing the picture of a typical animal cell. This is, would be the type of diagram you would see in a biology textbook. And you know, the, the cell uh, is fairly complex. And, and we see uh, in this cutaway of the cell that there's a, a spherical structure in the center called the nucleus. Inside the nucleus, there's a region called the nucleolus. And then there is this network of membranes that extend out, off of the nuclear envelope. This is called the endoplasmic reticulum. There are these membrane-bound organelles. So the cell is a complex system. But what I want us to focus on this evening is the cell membrane. And in this particular diagram, the cell membrane is barely even visible. It's this very thin, uh, nondescript envelope that is separating the exterior environment from the interior of the cell. So the, the cell membrane is the boundary for life. It, 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 it essentially contains all of the molecules and the machinery needed for, for life to exist. Outside of that cell membrane is an inanimate world. Inside the cell membrane is the animate world of the cell. Now, what if we blow up that little thin envelope and examine it in some detail? Well, this is a cartoon showing a small cutaway of the cell membrane. And this is what biochemists call a supramolecular diagram where it shows you the different molecules and gives you a sense of the overall size and shape of the molecules and looks at how those molecules interact to form the, the structure that you're interested in. In this case, it would be the cell membrane. And what we can see from the diagram is that the membrane consists of a sheet and that sheet is actually two molecular layers thick. So it's called a bilayer. And embedded in that bilayer are these large uh, globular uh, in helical type of structures, these are, are proteins that are embedded in the, in the membrane itself. And so uh, these proteins uh, are molecules that are the machinery of the cell that, that are carrying out different operations that give the cell membrane all of its biochemical properties. Uh, now, these proteins themselves are massive molecules that are built from linking together smaller molecules called amino acids into a linear chain, and then that linear chain of amino acids will actually fold into a complex three-dimensional shape. 
and those individual protein chains will interact with other protein chains to form what's called a complex made up of several different individual protein chains that interact. In this case, in this diagram, there are four uh, protein chains that are interacting to form this overall uh, spherical, uh, distorted spherical type of shape. So when we look at, at, at the cell membrane, what we see again are these massive proteins uh, complexes that are embedded in the membrane. Well, when it comes to the, the, the protein ATP synthase, it is a massive protein complex made up of a large number of individual protein chains that interact to form this very complex architecture that we see here, where in, in the cell membrane, we see this tan uh, cylindrical structure that is called the, the F0 component of the, the, the protein, and it is literally a motor that takes the flow of protons, which are positively charged. They, these protons flow through channels in the membrane. As the protons flow through the channels in the membrane, they actuate movement of a rotor that extends from the, the surface of that a spherical structure. This is a kind of a yellow, uh, yellowish uh, rod structure. That is called the rotor. And as the rotor rotates, there's a cam at a right angle to the rotor that interacts with the green and blue ovals causing a mechanical displacement. And that mechanical displacement drives a chemical reaction that generates a compound called ATP. But that mechanical movement is essentially a turbine action that, that again, is driving a, a chemical reaction in the formation of, of a chemical compound. And then there was this red bent structure called a stator that's holding the turbine in place. And this is an energy transduction machine that converts electrical energy into mechanical energy into chemical energy. Uh, this is one of the most efficient machines that we've ever discovered, uh, where this machine operates at near 100% efficiency. Uh, mo the most efficient machines that we can build as human engineers is probably, are probably operate at about 40% efficiency. So this is an incredible piece of technology that we're looking at. Now, the old adage is that a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, a, a video is worth even more than a thousand words. And so what I'd like to do is show you a video showing the operation of the ATP synthase. So this is a, a video produced by a team of scientists that represents kind of a scientific model in, in, in time, a time-based model for how this protein complex operates uh, uh, during its catalytic cycle. And note the machine-like nature of this uh, complex. So here we go. Here's the video. So we see, again, just uh, how remarkable this particular protein complex is. And note, again, the machine-like nature of this. And, and to me, it's, it's instructive to read what uh, an atheist uh, writes about this particular protein complex, about ATP synthase. And the atheist that I'm going to quote is uh, Nick Lane, who is a biochemist and origin of life researcher uh, at the University of College of London. And, and he wrote a book called The Vital Question, which is about the origin of life. And in this book, he talks about uh, ATP synthase, and this is what he writes. The most impressive nanomachine of them all, ATP synthase, is indeed a rotary motor in which the flow of protons turns a crankshaft 
which in turn rotates a catalytic head. The protein works like a hydroelectric turbine. This is barely poetic license, but a precise description, yet it is hard to convey the astonishing complexity of this protein motor. This is precision nanoengineering of the highest order, a magical device, and the more we learn about it, the more marvelous it becomes. Some see it as proof for the existence of God. I don't, but it undoubtedly is a wondrous machine. And so again, uh, what we see with this particular protein is the appearance of design, that this revitalizes, this reinvigorates uh, the watchmaker argument uh, because it has, again, all the qualities of, of the types of devices that we would make as human beings but it's the ATP synthase is far superior in its engineering than anything that we could produce. Uh, and, and so we know from experience that when we see machines, when we see motors, particularly machines and motors of the highest quality, we recognize that there is a mind responsible. And so when we see something like ATP synthase inside the cell, that this should be evidence that too, a mind was responsible for life. And ATP synthase is only one of hundreds of examples of protein complexes that are eerie resemblance to man-made machines. I could spend hours and hours describing all the different protein complexes that are machine-like in their nature. And like with ATP synthase, the more we learn about these machines, the more marvelous, the more magical they actually become. And I do indeed see them as proof for the existence of God. Okay, so what we've done up to this point is we've talked about uh, how we can use scientific discoveries to establish evidence for God's existence, how we can use uh, scientific discoveries uh, to demonstrate uh, the credibility of creation accounts. Uh, but now what we, I want to do is take a look at how can we use scientific insight to actually begin to get a, a sense for who this creator may actually be. Uh, so oftentimes, um, when I present a case in, in front of an audience of non-believers, in front of an audience of skeptics, when I present a case for a creator's existence, many times I'm challenged with this. Uh, well, you've established the idea that there is a creator, but how, why would you then say that that creator is necessarily the God of the Bible? And part of my response to that question is, well, the reason I believe that Creator is the God of the Bible isn't so much because of the scientific evidence, it's because of the historical evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus indeed rose from the dead, then that validates his teaching, it validates his ministry here on earth, and Jesus taught that he indeed was God, that if you saw Jesus, you saw, if you see Jesus, you see God himself. And so to me, that is the ultimate evidence why I believe that, that Jesus Christ is indeed the creator that we are learning about through science. But also we can build a, a case from scientific evidence that suggests that this creator indeed must be a creator that's very similar to what we see God, the way we see God described in the Old and the New Testaments. That the scientific evidence not only reveals a creator, but also, I believe, can give us some insight into who that creator may be, and that creator looks like it's the creator of the Judeo-Christian scriptures. 
So for example, we've already talked about the fact that if the universe indeed uh, begins, if the universe has a beginning, then there must be a causative agent that's beyond the universe that brought the universe into existence. That is that that creator must be transcendent. And again, this is how we would understand God from a Christian perspective. We also talked about the fact that we see design, design in the universe, design in the way the earth is put together. We see design in the biochemical arena, in living systems. And again, design reveals intent and it reveals purpose. And intent and purpose is something that flows out of a personality so that, that this transcendent causal agent must be personal. It's not an, it cannot be an impersonal force. We recognize that this creator must be a singular creator, not a group of creators. Why I say that is because when we look at uh, biological systems, we see a universality to life, that the biochemical systems that we learned about are universal, that every organism makes use of DNA and proteins and has cell membranes that are made out of identical types of materials that have core metabolic systems that are identical. There's a universality to uh, biochemistry. There's a universality to life in that it's all made up of cells. And, and, that those, and that when we look at living organisms, we see shared designs, that this all reflects the work of a singular mind, not a plurality of minds. That when we look at the, the laws of nature, we see that the laws of nature are, unchan are, are constant that this is why science is even possible, because the laws of nature tomorrow will be the same as the laws of nature today, and that the constancy, the regularity, the periodicity of nature reflects the fact that this creator is unchanging, that the creator is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, we also see beauty and elegance uh, to every aspect of the creation, whether it's the cosmos, whether it's the solar system, whether it's, our, whether it's the earth itself. We see our artistic flair and beauty within uh, the living realm as well. And so this indicates to us that this creator has an artistic side to him. And this is something that I see depicted when I look at the creation accounts. Uh, the fact that every, after each day of creation, God steps back and says, it is good. It's as if it is, is an artist admiring his handiwork. And so when we start looking at what we can glean about the nature of the creator from science, this is uh, the fact that we see a transcendent personal creator who is singular in nature, who is unchanging, who has this artistic flair. This to me is an apt description for how we see scripture depicting uh, the creator himself. And so at the end of the day, uh, what we see when we, we look at the record of nature is compelling evidence uh, that a creator must exist. We see compelling reasons to believe that the creation accounts found in scripture are indeed credible. We even see provocative evidence that suggests to us who this creator may actually be. But to me, the most mind-boggling thing of this all is that this creator that brought the universe into existence, that brought life into existence, that orchestrated the entirety of the universe's history, of Earth's history, and life's history, is a creator who wants to know us in an intimate and personal way. And this, to me, was something that 
uh, was amazing to me when I came to faith in Christ is that that creator I discovered inside the cell wanted to know me in an intimate and personal way and made a way for me to, to know him through the person of Christ. I even marvel at that even more so today, uh, three and a half decades later, to think that every time I learn something in science about the way the world looks, I'm, I'm getting a glimpse into that creator. And this is a creator who wants me to know him and a creator who wants uh, to know me. And that, that to me is the, the most incredible discovery I've ever made as a scientist. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You will also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrat. Zucrat.